name is Sean. I'm one of the pastors here at North Sub. Um, we have the pleasure of having some of our older kids in the sanctuary with us today. So if you're one of those families with your kids here, there are uh, bulletins available. So if you want to raise your hand, if you haven't already gotten one, um, someone will be sure to give you a kid's bulletin so that they can join us in worship today. The last few years, if you've uh, been with us, you'll know that we've been reading the Bible together. And Pastor Tim alluded to that this morning. Um, we've been using this app called the YouVersion Bible app. It's one of the most popular uh, Bible reading apps out there. And um, uh, if you um, didn't know what it means to read the Bible with us, it means that you're reading uh, cover to cover in a year. So if you've done that with us for the last couple of years, it means you've read the Bible every year for the last couple of years. Today's the first day of the year. So if you haven't joined us yet this year, you haven't missed anything. You can still be added to our group and no one would even know. In fact, if you were to, I don't know, take out your phone right now, for instance, you could go to the email or the, um, the realm invite that looks like this and it says in big bold letters, Bible in a year beginning January 1st. And you could scroll down to where it says, click this link. And if you were to do that, you'd be brought to this page where at the bottom you could accept the invitation to join our Bible reading app for the year. And then every day you'll have this plan ready for you where you'll get to uh, join in in that day's readings. Here's today's reading. We're just going to start in Genesis. And you see at the bottom, you get to talk it over. And that's the great thing about this plan is everyone who joins the plan then can comment on the end, uh, on the end page. And you get to share thoughts, share prayers, new revelations that were brought to you. And you get to converse with other people in the app. Um, the really cool thing that I love about this app is there's a lot of functionality in it. If you look at the top of your reading plan, you can change the, the Bible version, change it to one of your favorites. Um, you can even change the, the text size and font style, and you can even have it read to you. You see up at the bottom, there's a little volume symbol. You can have it read to you. So maybe you're the type of person that likes to listen to the word on your way to work or wherever you're going. You can listen to it in the car. If you're a speed listener, you can put it on times two and listen to the word that way. Um, whatever floats your boat. But there's a lot of options in this app, and it's a really wonderful way to, to connect with each other and with God's Word every day. You'll see um, some QR codes. So if you don't want to dig through that week-old email, there are QR codes that are going to be posted. Um, you already saw them this morning. They'll be in the lobby as well on the screens, and you can take your phone and snap that with your camera. Now, in light of last week's message, where Pastor Tim explained that uh, the gifts of Jesus come in the form of his birth first as, um, as he was born here on earth. And I wanted to start this year with a message on humility and, and what that humility might look like. And Jesus humbled himself to be born here and humbled himself even to the point of a cross. And, um, you know, Jesus' birth probably wasn't what many people expected. Much of what God does doesn't look like how we think it might look like or how we think it should look like. But looks can be deceiving, right? And that's what we'll explore to, together today in the book of James. We'll be asking our, this question, why do we play favorites and why is it wrong? Favoritism hits at the core of some of our values here at North Sub. 
And it should be the core of what we stand for as a Christian because God looks at the heart. He doesn't look at just your exterior to judge you. He doesn't look at what, what's on the outside. Uh, bow your head with me in prayer before we read our text. Heavenly Father, you are good and you are great. And you pour out your mercy to us every day. Our hearts are open to you, Lord. And we pray that your name would be magnified today. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, studies have been shown that we naturally give favor to those who are taller, stronger, more beautiful. Romantic relationships, professional careers, social status, in every way possible, people who have won the genetic lottery, so to speak, are shown favoritism by those around them. They benefit from it, not because they've done anything to earn it, but simply because of how they look. You know, you might think it's strange if I were to only preach to this side of the room because this side happens to be taller, maybe more symmetrical, maybe they have all their hair. This side might be feeling neglected right about now because I haven't looked over there in a second. But we do this from time to time, maybe some more than others. We give special attention and special treatment to people who look good, seemingly, on the outside. There was a book written by Daniel Hammermesh about this phenomenon called Beauty Pays, Why Attractive People Are More Successful. In this book, he comes to the conclusion that there should be strict legal protection stopping beauty discrimination. He thinks there should be legal precedent to stop beauty discrimination. So what we find today in our hearts is not actually that different from what James talks about almost 2,000 years ago. Our heart's natural tendency is to favor what looks best on the outside, what looks good by the world's standards. And we'll unpack today what James has to say about favoritism and discover why he warns us so strongly about it. Will you turn with me to James chapter 2 as I read the text? If you're using the Bible in um, the church seat, you will find it on page 1071. James is a book that strikes me every time I read it. Because every time I read it, I'm more and more thankful for Jesus because it, it continuously shows me how easily my heart fails to love like he wants me to. In our text, we'll see that James believes that first, favoritism is wrong, and then that favoritism violates God's kingdom. Starting in verse 1. My brothers and sisters... Do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing fine clothes and say, sit here with me in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there, or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? 
yet you have dishonored the the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit a sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you commit adultery, but you murder, you are a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has, shown, who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So in our passage, we see first and foremost that favoritism is wrong. If you were to read James straight through, you would see that James stays true to his format of beginning his part of writing with this, my brothers and sisters. And every time James says this, three things follow. First, we are reminded that he is speaking to the family of God, believers in Christ, people that believe they're held to a different set of standards because they know the word. They've bought into what Jesus has said and what the word of God has said. The world does not follow that same set of standards. Second, we know that a new topic is about to spring up. And third, that topic is going to be challenging. James loves to challenge. So what's the challenge that we have for us today? Do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith. Literally, the Greek says, don't have faith with favoritism. And if you were to read the NASB, you would, you would find that that translation holds pretty closely. The question we might ask right off the bat is, why? Why not play favorites? It's a question worth asking, I think. You know, we have favorite sport teams. We have best friends. We have favorite places to eat. If you were to get me brisket, I would ask for it to be from Texas because that's where I believe the best brisket comes from. I play favorites when it comes to, t- to barbecue. But James isn't talking about mere preference. James isn't talking about things that just give you joy. But preferences and how it relates to people and how you relate to people. So it's one thing for me to say brisket from Texas is amazing and it's all I want to eat. And it's another thing to say I will only treat people kindly if they also enjoy that brisket. And we can see this distinction very clearly in verses two and four, or two through four. If someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor at the one wearing fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there, or sit by the floor, on the floor, by my footstool, Haven't you made distinctions amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You see, the person in this scenario is seeing two people, and the only distinction being made in between them is based on what they look like. He sees fine clothing and a gold ring versus shabby clothing and the poor. And their relationship is altered because of this appearance. One sits in a good place, 
and the other is kept at a distance or low. A judgment is being made based on their looks. And that judgment, according to James, distinguishes this person as a judge with evil thoughts. James can make that claim because he's digging deeper into the heart issue here. He knows what the thought life is of this person based on these two distinctions, based on how they're treated. Certainly you don't think a man who is uh, poor and is dressed terribly is a good person if you choose to have them stay away. If you're choosing to keep them at a distance or low, James is telling you, I, I know what your thought life is. You're not thinking well of that person. You have evil thoughts. So take a moment with me right now, church, to reflect. Think about who it is that you might show favoritism to and ask, your question, ask yourself the question, why? Do you know this person well enough to make an informed decision about them, about their life, about who they are, the struggles they've been through? Or do you know them just enough to judge them based on what's on the outside? It's not a small question to ponder because James goes a step further and says that this isn't just a bad thing to do. It's not just a generally negative practice, but it's actually anti-God. Look with me starting in verse 5. He says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet, you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that, invoked, that was invoked over you? Whenever you see the word listen in the Bible, it signals a shift of focus and an emphasis on what is about to be said. And James says, listen, showing favoritism towards the rich is wrong because it contradicts God's attitude as revealed through his gracious salvation. And the Old Testament repeatedly stresses that God himself is impartial with appearance, looking at the heart of the person rather than the outside of the person. And God's people are to imitate him in this respect. There's lots of texts talking about God's character, and I've posted just a few for you to look at. And Jewish listeners would have been familiar with these passages. And it's the same in the New Testament. We see much of the same character traits, looking at the heart, not at the outside. Now, some reading closely may see, well, I see what you're saying here, but doesn't it say that God chose the poor? Isn't that God playing favorites? Sounds a little contradictory, doesn't it? Well, great question. I'm glad you asked. First, we don't have to look hard to see time and time again. Poor people are the ones who choose God because they see their need. They recognize the lack that they have. It was true in the early church and it's true today. And second, we'll see that the, the kind of poor that God chooses is not what we initially think. If it was, then we might be confused why Jesus chose a rich man in a tree and a well-off tax collector to follow him. Often, but not always, the physically poor intersect with the spiritually poor because they've been humbled 
by life circumstances. They know that they can't just do it on their own. They know that they need saving. This is why Jesus says it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle. Not because money is an automatic barrier to salvation, certainly not. But money can cause people to think in evil ways. For example, like I can just keep going on, taking care of myself. I don't need anyone's help. I don't need a savior. It can be easier for someone who has all of the worldly needs provided for them to miss that they're just as spiritually poor as the person sitting next to them. Their physical wealth will not cover this debt. Perhaps even more concerning is when a Christian shows favoritism towards anyone because they're implicitly claiming God's right to judge that person. But you know what's interesting? You know what happens in God's kingdom? The status that we receive in Christ is one of complete and holistic spiritual wealth. And we gain that not because of anything that we've done, but because of what Christ has done. So when we gain that through Christ, you and I are left knowing that we did nothing to earn that seat at the table and that we are utterly and spiritually poor without him. So it's nonsense for the Christian to play favorites with people based on what they look like because if we understood our heart to be depraved enough to need Christ, then we understand that we're not better. We realize that none of us are deserving and we are all ultimately And this is why in Luke chapter 6 and in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the beautiful, because theirs is the face of God. Or blessed are the tall, because they're going to reach heaven first. Blessed is the strong, because theirs is the right hand of God. He doesn't say those things. He says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Of God. The poor seem to realize something that others do not, that they are also spiritually poor and need of something greater than themselves. So it's becoming evident to James and to us that favoritism is bad, but James digs a little bit deeper to show that it violates God's kingdom. Read with me in verses 8 through 11. Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but murder, you are a lawbreaker. Jesus is or James is reminding the readers of Jesus' words here, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. One might suggest that if we're to know how to love our neighbor, we might want to know how we love ourselves first. 
So what do you do? When you, make, when you wake up in the morning, you think, I'm just so glad to be with myself. What a joy it is to be me. Probably not. I hope not. And if you are speaking like that, please come talk to me after service. I'd love to have a chat with you. Most of us tend not to wake up like Gaston from Beauty and the Beast singing a number about ourselves. But you probably do wake up and take care of yourself in some way or another. Let's take a little poll. Raise your hand if you had coffee this morning. Where are my coffee drinkers at? A lot of us. You're in good company. Thank you. Keep your hand raised. Um, now raise your hand if you had breakfast. We had a pancake breakfast. I saw a lot of people down there. Keep your hands raised. All right, so we're taking care of two of our needs so far. What about uh, anyone look in the mirror before they stepped out of the house today? I think that covered most of us. Thank you for, thank you for that. See, loving yourself means more about paying attention to yourself than feelings of joy about yourself. You took care of the needs that you had today. You took care of the thirst you had, the hunger you had. You made yourself look somewhat presentable. You're taking care of yourself. It's not about the emotions that you have for yourself, but it's the actions you take. So even though you didn't wake up singing a musical number, you did, and you do tend to take care of yourself. And the same is true with others. You know, you can love others without feeling love towards them. You can love others through your actions. You can act in a loving way. You know, when Jesus said these words, love your neighbor as yourself, he said it in Luke chapter 10. You can read that later on. He was talking to a man that was trying to get Jesus to summarize um, his interpretation of the law. He said, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all of your strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What Jesus is doing here is he's summarizing all of the Old Testament law, all of the commandments into two statements because these two statements are what the commandments were trying to convey. Every command and every law was given to do these two things. Show love to God, show love to your neighbor. So what Jesus is saying is, fella, all of the laws are important. But this man wasn't happy with that answer, so he says, who's my neighbor? Now, why is he asking that? Well, Jesus knows perfectly well why he's asking this. He knows the heart of the man. The essence of his question is he's trying to limit who he has to show love to. So he tells this story. Jesus tells this story. The essence is this. A man is beaten, left for dead at the side of the road. And all sorts of people who you would think might help this man did nothing but the Samaritan which this man who Jesus was talking to would have detested. The Samaritan stopped to help the man, so he asks, which man in this story was most like a neighbor? And the man replied, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus says, you are right. Go and do likewise. You see, the man questioning Jesus wanted to limit his capacity to show compassion and mercy to a limited subset of people. 
Potentially those people might have been people that looked good in his eyes. Maybe that looked similar to the way he looked. Maybe people that acted like him. But Jesus says, no, even people that you detest, even people you don't like, people you can't stand, if they show compassion, if they show mercy, they're acting in love and are more in line with God than you think. And it's not because they felt loving, but because they acted with grace. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Verse 8. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever keeps the entire law yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you are a lawbreaker. See, do not commit adultery, do not commit murder. These are part of the Ten Commandments that Jesus was referring to. But James shows us that even if you keep one part of the law, of the loving your neighbor part, even if you don't kill them, let's say, you are breaking all of the law by showing them favoritism. Why is it that whoever keeps the entire law yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking all of it? Why can't we just keep, I don't know, 70% of the law? It's good enough in most schools, right? You get a, along with a C, we pass students. Can't we have a pass, God? Maybe you're like me and you've struggled with this from time to time and you've wrestled with the holiness of God, his demand for perfection, this unattainable bar that is so high it's impossible to fill. But God's law isn't like an SAT or an exam where we can just get most of it right and still be okay. But the real beauty of this is that perfection has been gifted to you and to I. God's word says that if you fail at one point, you fail at all of it. We just read that in our text. But it also said, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. So on one hand, yes, we have this great demand that can never be met. God's holiness requires so much. We can't get a C average, but we all fail miserably. But on the other hand, we follow a God that gives mercy to those who show mercy. And so your failure and my failure doesn't have to be where the story ends. Alistair Begg says it like this. In one of his sermons on this passage, he says, there is a duality in the truth of God's holiness and nature here. You see, Jesus warned that he would come back to judge all the nations, but he also rewards those who show compassion for those who love him and obey his commands. So while it's true, we will one day appear before the judgment seat and account for our actions, we have a God who is gracious and even in our passage, we see that mercy triumphs over judgment. So let's be the type of people that triumph over this judgment. Let's be the type of people that don't judge people based on their height or their strength or their beauty. But we are the type of people that offer mercy because mercy triumphs over judgment.
Now, the word favoritism in this passage literally means receiving the face. But we follow a God that receives much more and asks us to do the same. He's the God that told Samuel when he was anointing King David, don't look at his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You know what's really amazing about this? It's that God is absolutely beautiful, and yet he does not judge based on our beauty. You know that if you were uh, to watch a solar eclipse, anyone do that? And you have to have those special glasses, right? You need to have that because the sun is so bright and so brilliant that even just to look at it will hurt you. Well, God's beauty and his brilliance is unimaginably more than that of the sun. And when we finally get to see him face to face, we'll be in such awe and such wonder that we won't be able to even control ourselves but to bow down and worship. And yet Isaiah says this in chapter 53. He did not have an impressive form or majesty that we should look upon him no appearance that we should desire him. Can you see that on the cross, Jesus lost everything so that you and I could receive everything? The God of the universe, bright and brilliant and beautiful, he condescended to become a man. He was made low like the poor person in our story so that you and I could have a good seat so that we could be made rich. In the book of John, in chapter 12, Jesus says that he will actually attract everyone to himself. So it's as, as, it's as if Jesus is saying, I'll go to the cross and I'll lose all of my beauty so that you can gain true beauty. Not surface beauty, but beauty for your soul. See, Jesus is the rich man who has the good seat, the best seat in the universe. And you and I, we're sitting on the cosmic floor. But Jesus gave up that seat so that we could be lifted high. And we don't deserve it. But he gives it to us. He gives us that good seat. We are the ones... Uh, not failing just at one part of the law, but over and over and over again, we're shattering God's holy law. Jesus, however, is the one keeping the whole law and not failing at any part of it. And he's granting us the rewards of that. C.S. Lewis shares an illustration that has helped me to understand better what it means that Jesus never failed in his mission. He never gave up and that he was holy. C.S. Lewis says this, No man knows how bad he is until he's tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by lying down. 
you uh, find out the strength of the wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. This is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside of us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows full what temptation means. Jesus is the one who never laid down, church. He never gave in to the winds of temptation. So he knows most fully how difficult temptation can be. So when you and I are tempted to think critically of others, uh, pray for God's grace to abound in your heart. Since he has conquered temptations, he will help you conquer them too. And since Jesus never laid down to the winds of temptation, ultimate grace was offered when he did lay himself down. The sinless man living the perfect life that you and I could never live, he chose to lay his life down. No one took it from him. But he chose to switch positions with you and me. And on a cosmic scale, he became like the poor person so we could become like the rich person. On judgment day, you and I are not going to want to be judged based on how we look. Because we've all fallen short. But we're going to be wanting to be judged based on Jesus Christ and our trust in him. The commands that James has for us, they're not to be accomplished by sheer will, but by the changing of your heart. Because you can try to follow this stuff, but eventually you're going to slip if it's by sheer might. Eventually you'll cave. You'll get so, uh, it'll be so difficult to hold your tongue time and time again with that person that's hard with you. Or uh, to not give favor or pay attention to that person that you've been trying to. Eventually you'll slip and the truth of your heart will come out. But when you really grasp what Jesus has done for you, you'll begin to think, how could I possibly show favoritism to anyone? Why on earth would I shout filth from my mouth when my soul has been saved for all eternity? Nothing but praise should be coming from my lips. If you don't know this Jesus, who did everything for you, what's stopping you? This is the God of the universe welcoming you to a glory that you and I cannot yet fathom. Will you accept his offer to take a better seat today? Bow with me as I pray. Heavenly Father, your word is true. Your word is living. And it sharpens us. It pierces our very hearts. We ask that you offer us your grace and your forgiveness when we play favorites. And we thank you for showing us new mercies every day. In Jesus' name, amen.